John 14. So we are, you may not realize this, but this passage is, uh, we are still in the upper room. We are still at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper that we described last week. And, uh, and so they're still up in that room, and you may not realize this, but there's a lot, this is called the upper room discourse. And so Jesus is talking to his disciples. Judas is already out of the room. He's already gone. He's gone off to betray the Savior. And so in John chapter 14, verses, uh, we're looking at verse 1 today, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now you might be asking, okay, why is he saying, let not your hearts be troubled? Let's just take a quick review. He has already said that he's going to go away. He has already told Peter that Peter's going to deny him three times. He's already told them that Judas is going to betray him or someone's going to betray him. And so you can imagine they're a little bit uncomfortable in this, in this meeting, in this Passover meal. They're a little bit on edge, wondering what's next. And so um, he's also said things like, you know, some people are going to fall away from me. And so they're a little bit worried. And so um, what I want you to see in this, in this first verse, though, is that there is a distinct connection between worry and anxiety and fear and then faith, okay? When you look at the scriptures, especially in the, in the Gospels, Jesus is always talking to his disciples about uh, fear and faith. He says things like, why do you fear? Why do you worry? Why are you anxious? Then he says, he says things like, have faith and put your faith and trust in me. So he says, believe in God, believe also in me. And so there's, there's a distinct connection between fear and faith. How does Jesus tell them to fight against their fear, their worry, and their anxiety? He says, you put your faith and your trust in me. You believe in God, you believe also in me. And I think for most of us, um, especially at your age especially, you don't, you don't tend to think of worry as something you have control over, do you? Like you, you think of worry and anxiety as something that just kind of happens to me. It's just, I have to deal with it, I have to live with it. And what we forget sometimes is that, um, no, you can, you can fight fear with faith, right? Like you really can do that. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, look, believe in God, believe also in me. I think he's making a connection here between if, if you're troubled, if you're anxious, if you're worried about something, then you can put your faith and trust in me. This is a command. It's not just a, okay, if you're having a tough day, you might want to think about this just as a possibility. This is like, hey, put your faith and trust in me. Put your faith and trust in me. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, um, it says be anxious for nothing. That's a command. That's a command, right? And so we don't just stop anxiety by trying really hard. We actually have to do something about it, and it, it looks like this. It looks like faith. You're putting your faith and trust in someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ. Um, this is partly why I think it's, it's so important for us to pour over the Scriptures, to know the Scriptures, to look at a book like John and, and know who Jesus really is, because most of us don't really know the person of Jesus, do we? Most of us just kind of see Jesus as like a distant deity, a distant person. We don't think of him as a, a true person that we can know. We don't see him like that. And so this is why I encourage you to look at a book like John and say, okay, this, this person, Jesus, he came to earth. God came to earth in the form of man, and he spent time with people. He said, hey, you can, you can put your faith and trust in me when you're concerned, when you're anxious, when you're worried about life. You can put your faith and trust in me, and you can combat uh, you can combat fear with faith. Look at uh, verse 2. It says, 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Now this verse, I know most of us always think of the, uh, um, some passages, some uh, Bibles say, in my Father's house are many what? What's the word? Mansions, right? Um, That's a translation that a lot of people don't really like because it doesn't really give the right picture because most of us think like, oh, mansions, right? You think of the, um, the bling, you think of like, how big is my mansion going to be? That, that's what you picture in your mind. And uh, I'm not saying heaven's not going to be beautiful. I think it will be. But I think in this passage, what he's trying to communicate is that, um, that there are dwellings with God that he's, he's trying to paint this picture. And, and so, um, so in that day, when a Jewish son got married, his, his dad would build a room onto the house. Imagine that for just a minute. When a Jewish son got married, his dad would build a room onto the house for the new wife and the son to live in. That's kind of awkward, isn't it? That's kind of weird. Can you imagine that happening in your, in your family? Like, you're about to get engaged, and dad's like, well, I'll start construction. And you're like, what are you talking about? Right? That's going to be kind of weird, dad. I don't want to do that. But that was tradition back then. And so they would just sort of add rooms onto the house, and they would have one big extended family. And uh, you just kind of grow together as a family, right? And so this is the image being painted for us that the Father, Jesus is going to his Father's house to, um, to prepare a place for them. And I think the reason why he's trying to get their mind on this place called heaven is because of what they're about to experience on earth, right? He, he's trying to shift their perspective and say, look, even though you're going to go through some really tough things and some suffering, and you're about to see how broken this world really is, I want to get your mind off the here and now and put it uh, in an eternal perspective and let you see what I have in store for you. Let you see the place that I am creating for you. All right, how's that? That's two weeks in a row I've had mic issues, so it's a curse. It's a curse. All right, so where are we? So we're talking about verses uh, 2 to 4. Okay, so I think um, the disciples are about to see some crazy things go down, aren't they? They're about to see like, the true brokenness of the world that you and I live in. And I know that for um, those here in the room now, like, you don't have to look very far to know this world is broken, do you? I mean, I think of this past week when I heard the stories of what happened in this accident and with Kevin and the whole situation. It's like there's a family out there who was just innocently driving their car one day, and now their six-month-old is just gone, died, because of someone else's irresponsibility and foolishness, right? Like, you don't have to look very far to know that we live in a broken, broken place. And Jesus knows what's about to hit these guys is going to be pretty bad in their persecution and their suffering. And so... um, I think for, for most of us, sometimes when you see the brokenness that's all around us, all you can do is hope for heaven. It's all you can really do. Like you can't, there is nothing in this life that we can say, okay, well, no, I understand now why this six-month-old died, or I understand now why this happened to this person or this happened to me. Like there's, sometimes all you can do is just go, you know, 
I just want to get my mind off of here and put it there, like with him. That's, all, that's my only hope. Like there's no explaining. There's no explaining what takes place here sometimes. You can't explain it. You can't reason it. You can't find ways to make it fit some tapestry and say, oh, in the end it's all going to be beautiful. I mean, it's, it's brokenness and it's sin. And at times all we can do is just say, in the end he's going to make it right. That's all I can say. In the end, we're going to be with him. If you're a believer, we're going to be with him. That's all I can say. That's all I can really hang on to in the end. Look at verse 5. It says, Thomas said to him. Now, Thomas is known as what? Doubting Thomas, right? So Thomas is doubting. So Thomas says to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do not from now on you do know him and have seen him. So Thomas is known as the the doubter, the doubting Thomas, right? And this is why I love Thomas, because Thomas is the skeptic of the group. Thomas is the cynical guy, he's the skeptical guy. And I love the fact that Jesus included a guy like that in one of the twelve. Isn't that, isn't that encouraging to know that Jesus did not choose these men based on like the muscle of their faith, based on like their ability to have great faith and, and great passion for him, right? That's not why he chose these men. He chose these men so that he could be glorified through these empty vessels, right? And so Thomas is an example of that. So if you're someone who struggles with, um, with faith, you have great doubt, you're a skeptic, you're a cynical person, I think Jesus chose a guy like Thomas for people just like you. Because he knew that many different kinds of people would need to know that he is a gracious and loving God that can put up with all kinds of, of, of cynicism and skepticism and doubt. He can handle it. He is the Messiah. And I think it's encouraging to know that Jesus chose someone like Thomas uh, who is a doubter and, and a skeptic. Um, we can take comfort in knowing that. So what does uh, Thomas mean in verse 5? Um, he thinks at first, he says, uh, you know, okay, you're going away, so how, how do we know where you're going? How can we know the way? And Jesus says to him in verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Thomas thinks he's talking about like some kind of physical journey. Like, you're, you say you're going somewhere. Where are you going? We don't know the way. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus turns it into something spiritual and says, you know, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And verse 6 is often used to talk about other world religions. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But this verse is really about something else altogether. The Jews thought that the way to God the Father was to obey the law. The Jews thought that if I want to get to God the Father, I've got to, Climb the ladder of obeying the law. That's what's going to get me there. But the point of the law was never to create a pathway to God if you obey it. The point of the law was to point out the fact that you and I need a Savior. The point of the law was to show that you're a sinner separated from God because of your sin, and the law points that out. And so therefore, you need Jesus. That's the point of the law. But the Jews sort of turned things around and thought that, okay, this law is meant for 
me to get to God. If I obey these things, it's like a ladder that I climb to God the Father. So they saw their obedience as being the way to get to God the Father. And so Jesus is saying, no, if you want to get to the Father, you don't do it by obeying the law, you go through me. I am the one you go through. I have fully obeyed the law. I have fully um, lived the perfect life. And at one point, of course, he's going to give his life on the cross for their sins and our sins. And putting our faith and trust in that truth is what saves someone, not by climbing the ladder of the law. And so we can still discuss other religions, though, because um, every religion apart from Christianity is a works-based religion, right? Every religion on some level is like the way that um, these people saw Judaism. It was to climb some kind of a ladder to get to God. So every religion in the world that's ever been invented, a religion that's made by man, um, is works-based except for one, and that's Christianity. In fact, there's a story about um, C.S. Lewis. You guys know who C.S. Lewis is, right? I don't want to insult your intelligence this morning, okay? But you know who C.S. Lewis is. Um, our schools are doing a great job, apparently. Good job. So, um, so C.S. Lewis was a professor at Cambridge, but also Oxford in England. And he was a believer. And his fellow professors did not like the fact that he was a believer, right? And so one day they bring him into a room and they say, okay, we're going um, to ask you some questions. So they put all the religions they can think of on the board. And they said, okay, what makes Christianity different from all of these? And he said one word. Can you guess what it is? Someone said grace. Who said grace? It's grace. He said grace. And he walks out of the room. And so when you look at Christianity, it's the only one that incorporates grace. It's the only one that is God extending himself to mankind. Everything else is workspace, man climbing this ladder trying to get to God. And so it separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. So here's some statements from our culture that we hear a lot. Uh, one is there are many ways to God, right? You've heard that before. Uh, there are multiple pathways to God, right? There are many ways to God. This statement is based on another assumption, and the assumption is this. A truly loving God would allow for multiple pathways to himself. You heard that before? Maybe not in the, those words, but the, the implication is there, right? That if God is truly a loving God, then there must be multiple pathways to himself. The idea is that if there are not multiple pathways to him, then he's not loving, right? And there's a part of us that would say, yeah, okay, I can see where they think that or how they think that. But I want you to really think about these kinds of statements for a moment. Because here's the issue. The problem with all pathways leading to God is this. Because unfortunately, every world religion contradicts each other, right? They don't all agree on the same things, the same truths. So the question is, how can, how can certain religions that, that disagree on the main truths, right, of, of the world and Jesus and who Jesus is, who he wasn't, how can, those, how can those contradictory truths, how can they coexist? One religion says Jesus Christ is God. The other one says Jesus Christ is not God. He was just a man. 
How can those truths coexist together and both be equally true? It cannot happen. You cannot have contradictory truth claims and say that they're both equally valid, equally true. And so when you guys leave here, like next year, the year after that, if you're a junior, and go to college, you're going to hear these kinds of philosophies uh, preached on the streets of your schools, in the classrooms, um, that if you're going to say that, that there's one way, if you're going to say that, then they're going to call you a bigot, they're going to call you um, narrow-minded, they're going to say that you are um, just foolish, because there has to be more than one way. If, if God's a loving God like you say he is, then there has to be more than one way to him, Right? And so what you have to know, though, is this. I would argue it this way. I would argue that a God, let's just think for a moment. If there really is a God out there who says, no, I'm okay with there being contradictory truth claims about myself from other world religions, and I'm perfectly fine with that, and I'm allowing multiple pathways to myself, if that really is who God is, right, then that to me is not a loving God. That's a confusing God because he's allowing contradictory truth claims to exist about himself, right, and pretending like these things can coexist together. That's very confusing for humans, right? That's a very confusing thing for us. For one religion to say Jesus Christ is not God, for someone else to say Jesus Christ is God, and God to kind of leave that and say, we're going to let everyone just kind of come to me however they choose, right? Like, that's just a very confusing, vague, abstract God. That is not a more loving version of God, in my opinion, right? I think a truly loving God is someone that tells the truth about himself, tells the truth about reality, and says, no, there's one way, and it's to come through Jesus Christ. That is not an exclusive, narrow-minded truth claim. That is the truth, right? If it's true, then it's loving for God to tell us that it's true. If it's true, then it's loving when a Christian, in a loving, gentle way, says to someone else, hey, this is what I believe, and here's why. I don't think that your version of God that thinks that multiple ways are possible to him represents a more loving God. That's a confusing God. That's a contradictory God. I don't see how that's more loving. I, I don't understand that. And so Jesus says that he's very clear. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Look at, uh, look at verse 8. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. So it's really in, in verse 8, Philip says, Okay, God, Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus is kind of like, wait, 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 wait a second. Like, don't you know who I am? Me and the Father, we're one. Like, I'm God. I'm God. He's reminding him, hey, I'm God. He's reminding him who he is. 
Philip has gotten so comfortable with Jesus, he's forgotten that who this person is that he's with. In verse 11, um, he's got a strange response. He says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. What he's saying is that basically, if they don't believe his words, then at least believe his works. At least believe his miracles. Like, we'd all agree that it's kind of hard to argue with a miracle, right? Like, you really can't argue with a miracle. <laughs> I mean, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with um, some loaves and some fish. Like, you really can't argue about that. Like, you're not going to be like, okay, you're, you're, not, you're not God. It's like, well, I just, I just did this, you know. I just raised Lazarus. Um, I just healed many people. You really can't argue with someone who's doing a miracle. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you need credibility, if you need me to give you credibility, then at least look at my works. Like, how are you going to argue with my works? Like, how can you argue with those things? Miracles are kind of a big deal, right? And so I think once again we see, we see the grace of God at work. Um, Jesus comes to earth, and he gives every single person on the earth every chance that they need to believe and put their faith and trust in him, doesn't he? he? He proves himself to be God. And this is an act of his grace. Because he didn't have to do that, right? Like he could have just argued his case, said a bunch of words, right? Um, he could have been like, you know, I am God. They could be like, no, you're not. I'm God. No, you're not. Back and forth like, like two little children, right? And that could have been it. But instead, he, in his grace, chooses to show his um, authority and his power through his miracles. Look at verse 12. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now this passage does create some problems, doesn't it? Because this passage is used by many people, especially if you turn on the television, um, the Word of Faith movement, you've heard of that. Um, these verses are used often to support what goes on in that movement. Things like, Jesus said, like, we're going to do greater works than he's going to do. And when you really think, you're like, wait, I mean, okay, let's break this down. Jesus raised people from the dead. That's a pretty big deal. Jesus was resurrected. That's a pretty big deal. Jesus fed 5,000 people with loaves and fish. That's a pretty big deal. Do you really think he's saying that you, everyone who follows after him, is going to raise people from the dead? Do you really think he's saying you're going to commit miracles better than what he committed? Are you really wanting to say that about Jesus and what he's saying here with these words? What he's meaning by these words is that the disciples were going to have a bigger reach throughout the world than what even he had, right? The disciples were going to go further. They're going to go throughout the, the empires and, and minister the gospel. Jesus never left Palestine. He never left Israel. He never left that little tract of land there in the Middle East, right? Never left it. And the disciples are going to go further and tell even more people about Jesus Christ. Think about Peter in, in the book of Acts. He... Um, he preaches one time, first sermon that we know of, and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus, right? That never happened to Jesus, right? He never had a 
a sermon that 3,000 people came to believe in him. Now, could he if he wanted to? Of course he could have. (laughs) I'm not limiting him. But he's saying to the disciples, like, you're going to do bigger works when it comes to the Great Commission, and you're going to have a farther reach than what I had here while I was on this earth. And so we can't, we can't abuse Scripture when we look at these kinds of things. And then in verse 14, he says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Another verse that people use, and take out of context, they'll say things like, well, you know, I'm really praying for um, a Lamborghini, and uh, if I say in Jesus' name, I mean, he's got to come through, right? In Jesus' name, I'm going to pray for fill in the blank, right? So what does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? Here's what it means. It means that you pray for the things that he cares about. It means that you pray for things that are going to bring him glory, going to bring his name glory. You pray and you care about those things, right? And so when you, when you think about Jesus, when you, when you think about praying for something, when you pray in his name, you are praying for things that are going to bring him glory and honor. You're going to pray for things that, um, that he cares about. And as your heart becomes aligned with his heart, you're going to be, begin to care about the things that he cares about, right? This is what he means in this passage. Look at verse uh, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Love produces obedience. Love produces obedience. So he's saying love for Jesus and and obedience to his commands are always tied together. Listen, love for Jesus and obedience to his commands are always tied together. Right? If I say I love my wife, but I cheat on her and I do it repeatedly, do I love her? No. No. Love and obedience are always tied together. You see, I think what happens for most of us is that many Christians kind of get this reverse. We think that if we, um, most of you, especially your age, you think of obedience like this. Okay, I, I became a Christian when I was at this age, and obedience to you is just like a chore. Obedience is just like, hey, suck it up and just obey. Just follow the rules and just do it. You don't have to like it, just do it, Right? And you think to yourself, okay, if, if I obey, then at some point my heart's going to kick in and I'm going to love him. I'm going to be passionate for him, right? We kind of get this reversed, but it's really the opposite. Love produces obedience. Love inspires obedience, right? And I think this is, this is partly why, the main reason why many people that are your age now, five years from now, they turn their back on God because they... They've been living this life kind of reverse where they've just been obeying and kind of going through the motions and, and their heart's not been caught up with Jesus. And so the Christian life is like a passionless, joyless existence, right? And they're waiting for their heart to kind of click in and follow their actions, and it never really does. And then they just go, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with the facade. I'm done with the game. I'm done being a hypocrite. And they forget that it's love that produces obedience, not the other way around, right? 
The second statement you can write down is this. Uh, Obedience divorced from love does not last. Obedience divorced from love does not last. So here's, this is the, the very reason why so many people, when they get out of the house, they abandon the faith because all their life they've been living this kind of obedient life, but it's been a facade. There's no passion, joy, and love for Jesus, right? And so some parents will often um, pull me aside and they'll say things like, you know, yeah, um, We've got to teach these students that you have in the Outback. We've got to teach them how to defend their faith. And I agree with that on some level. I agree that we should have um, series on like apologetics and defending the faith and so on. But um, here's the problem I have with their statement sometimes, though, and it's this. Because I think what they're saying is the reason why kids are falling away from the faith these days is because of those professors in the university. And I'm like, yeah, that's part of it. That's a little bit of it. But I want to say to them, look, the best way to teach our kids to not abandon the faith is to teach them how to love Jesus, right? Because a professor in a university is not going to sway someone who is in love with Jesus, right? Not going to happen. Now, it's helpful to discuss arguments and defense and those kinds of things, but if the, if the kid doesn't love Jesus, it's not going to matter, is it? And so we teach you to defend the faith by teaching you how to love and pursue, be passionate about Jesus, right? You cannot divorce love and obedience. You cannot do it. You cannot do it. And so um, what I want to do now, it's late. I'm going to dismiss you guys to your breakouts here in a second. Um, if uh, If you're new and don't know where to go, just head down the hallway right here, and you'll see um, like your grade and, uh, and gender on, the, on one of the, the, the doors there. You can just find your room and go in there. And uh, I've got um, kind of a new guy checking things out today. Um, where's Jonathan? Is he around? Where's Jonathan? He's there at the back. Um, he's going to be with my sophomores today. Um, so just, guys, be respectful of him. Don't pull at his beard, those kinds of things. Um, so you guys are dismissed. The questions are uh, over here on the ping pong table.